One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello, welcome to The Real Story. I'm Chris Morris. The latest pictures from Syria. The BBC cannot independently verify them, but this is said to be the southern town of Dera yesterday. Dara was where it all began, with graffiti on a school wall in March 2011. It was one of the sparks for a civil uprising against the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad, following on from mass protests elsewhere in the Arab world, which had already seen the fall of leaders in Tunisia and Egypt. But Syria was different. Militant groups emerged and civil uprising quickly became armed rebellion and before long, full-scale civil war. This week, more than seven years on, Dara finally fell to government forces, reclaiming the last opposition-held province in southern Syria. The war has been, all wars are, brutal. At least 350,000 people have been killed, maybe more, and millions have fled from homes which have been destroyed. Outside powers have been drawn into the conflict, the United States and Russia, Turkey and Iran, the Gulf states and more. Russia's decision to prop up President Assad when he was in trouble was a decisive moment. Bit by bit, the government and its allies have bombed rebel groups into submission, reclaiming city after city. Assad now seems secure, but about a quarter of the country in the oil-rich northeast is still in the hands of the Kurdish-dominated SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces backed by the United States. Hardline opponents of the Assad regime, meanwhile, are amassed in the province of Idlib next to the Turkish border. So is it yet possible to say the war is coming to an end? Well, I'm joined in the studio by the award-winning journalist Patrick Coburn, author most recently of The Age of Jihad, and by Karen von Hippel, director of the Royal United Services Institute and a former senior US State Department official. In Beirut, we're joined by the Lebanese journalist Noor Samaha, and in Paris by Michel Duclos, former French ambassador to Syria. To kick off, a question to each of you on the panel. Very simply, has Bashar al-Assad won in Syria? Karen. I don't think so. Uh, If anything, it would be a Pyrrhic victory. I don't see him being able to control the entire country. Let's not forget when the Russians came in, they came in because he was about to collapse. And so they're propping him up. And so I just don't see how he would re-establish rule, not to mention the ethical issues and the moral issues, which we'll come to later. Michel Duclos? Yes, I would say roughly the same thing. That is to say, uh, not yet, because it doesn't control all the territory, as um, Karin has said, and also because now he's usually dependent upon the, uh, the Russians, the Iranians and the Israelis. Nur so, Samaha, what do you think? Um, I would say it's still too early to tell, but I wouldn't say it's an outright no. I mean, he's steadily been regaining territory that was previously lost, and he's pushing forward with domestic policies that he was unable to do uh, previously because of the war. And Patrick, finally, has is it too soon to declare victory? A final victory, possibly, but he has won, yes. The long war was about would he stay in power, and he has stayed in power. Out of about 16 million Syrians still in the country, he probably... Uh, rules over 12 million of them. So it's a very substantial victory. 
Okay, well, let's just pick up on that and establish who controls what in Syria at the moment, if we can. Nur Samaha, this week, President Assad has regained control of Dara province. How much of the country does he now have? I would say that, obviously, you pointed this out earlier, the two areas that he doesn't have control of, uh, Idlib and uh, the north, uh, where the predominantly Kurdish areas are. But the rest of it is under his control. And this is something that he has been able to um, accumulate over the last three years. So I would say probably about uh, 70% of the country now lies under under Assad's control. And Karen von Hippel, you've been working with the US government on countering so-called Islamic State, IS. The land under their control has certainly shrunk massively. Right, right. I mean, I left uh, at the end of 2015. But I think really the challenge going forward will be more the pockets of resistance, whether it's a number of different types of jihadi groups, including ISIL, but opposition groups as well that are are, are the non-jihadi opposition groups. I just I don't see how he regains control over all of those areas in the immediate future. And I also just don't see how he will have the moral authority to lead, given what he has done to the country and how many people he has been responsible for killing the vast majority under his control. And were not killed by ISIL. They were killed by his regime. And Michel Duclos, I mean, he's obviously been on the up. But when do you think his low point was? When was he under most threat? Uh, he was very weak in um, as soon as um, uh, 2012. And then uh, 2014, of course. Uh, in the current situation, his main problem is to deal with uh, his sponsors and, uh, and Israel. That is to say, there could be a point when the Israelis will realize that uh, the um, Russians are not delivering in their promises to contain uh, uh, Iran. If uh, the Iranians were really to withdraw from uh, Syria, uh, it would be very difficult for Assad to maintain it himself. Uh, And maybe one can uh, dream sometime the Western powers will also realize that uh, the refugees are not coming back. And the Israeli will um, realize also that, uh, or the Russians will realize that, after all, the situation is not that stable. So, in a nutshell, Assad has a lot to prove to external powers if he wants to keep enjoying the uh, situation is enjoying uh, now. And a lot to prove, I guess, Patrick Coburn, internally as well. What are the other opposition groups, putting aside the no, Kurdish in, groups for the moment, because we're going to come to them in a few minutes. What about other jihadi and non-jihadi groups, Patrick? What of them? I think there's a pattern of people underestimating how strong Assad is, not just uh, now, but really from 2012 on. Uh, people have been arguing that he's weak, he's about to go. I think that this has always been exaggerated. And when it comes to his opposition, the opposition has always been that bit more weaker than it looks. Uh, One of the strengths of Assad, when you talk to people in Damascus or in other parts of uh, Syria, is that some of the population support him. A lot of people don't much like him, but they prefer him to the alternative, which has been these jihadi groups, ISIS, Daesh or al-Nusra. That's been one of the great strengths of Assad, is the lack of an acceptable alternative in the eyes of many Syrians. 
and obviously we're talking about the politics, but we shouldn't forget that the dreadful toll of civilian deaths we've seen over the last seven years. How much fighting is going on at the moment? How is it possible to say how many people are being killed every week now compared with, say, one year or two years ago? There's much less fighting than there was. You know, we're seeing the end of what appears to be the end of fighting in the south. You know, the two big cities, uh, Aleppo and Damascus, that were divided. We had, for the last few years, you know, eastern Ghouta. It's a very big area. It's a big chunk of Damascus. And there are other big areas like Daraya in the city under the control of the opposition. That's no longer true. And you always had fighting going on there. You know, even mortar bombs would... I'd stay in the old city in uh, Damascus. Mortar bombs would be coming down. And also in Aleppo. Again, along the Euphrates Valley, there's less fighting. Daesh has been driven back. There's still clashes there. But, you know, we still suddenly have these eruptions of violence of suddenly 200 Druze are killed by ISIS by these uh, appalling uh, suicide bombings. With hardly any attention in the outside world. With hardly any attention in the outside world. Uh, Michel Duclos, do you think one way to look at it uh, in terms of an audience trying to understand this vast complexity is that perhaps a conventional civil war is giving way to something I guess we've seen for a while, which is this series of proxy wars involving the ambitions of outside powers? Yes and no, actually. Uh, it's true that um, the, 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 the role of uh, external powers is, is very important, but mainly now in supporting Assad. It's not really true anymore uh, for the so-called opposition. I think maybe the, the opposition they, they still get some support from, um, from regional uh, countries, but much less than before. So now it's more about uh, one-to-one between uh, Assad and uh, his uh, sponsors. I think for your audience, what's important also is to realize that when you are asked the question, do the people in Damascus or Aleppo or elsewhere support or not the powers of the regime? In fact, they don't have choice. Most of them, they are there because they have no alternative. For instance, the people who have properties, if they want to keep the house and things like that, they can't go abroad. And usually it's very difficult to settle abroad. And the very poor people, they have to stay to uh, f- try to, to feed their families. But that doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean support, that means submission. Sure, sure. To, Karen, to, Karen von Hippel, you to wanted a to come terrorist in. Uh, system. Yeah, Karen von Hippel. I just want to uh, support something Michelle just said about uh, the only external powers are supporting Assad. It used to be the US, the UK, the French and others were leading on pushing for peace in Syria, not successfully, and it isn't necessarily their fault that it wasn't successful. But really, since Donald Trump has assumed power, those countries have almost fully withdrawn. And now the leadership on the so-called peace process is Russia and Iran and Turkey on occasion. But Turkey is, has different challenges. And if you think Russia and Iran have any of the same ideals for what Syria should be in the future that the French, the Brits and others do, you're sadly mistaken. And that's really the tragedy of it all is that the Americans have fully withdrawn their leadership. I don't see enough from this country as well. And, you know, you see the French on occasion surging, but really it's not in the same degree that it was. And that's really a tragedy. 
Well, one potential looming confrontation we haven't talked about yet is in the northwestern province of Idlib. We'll come on to that a bit later in the programme. But a group we haven't talked much about so far is the SDF. That's the Syrian Democratic Forces. Patrick, we're going to hear from one of their leaders in a moment. But first of all, can you tell us a bit more about them? Because you've reported from the territory they hold in northeastern Syria. Yeah, the SDF is a combination of Kurds and Arabs in the area, backed very heavily backed by American, primarily American air power. That's, uh, that's what gives them their real striking force. Predominantly Kurdish, fair to say? About half and half, but when you talk to the officers and the commanders, they all seem to be Kurdish, whereas I was in Raqqa or Membij or Kobani. So it's kind of run by the Kurds. And these are the crack troops, the Kurdish SDF units. So And militarily, pretty effective and fight very hard. But this is a very big area. Maybe they've got sort of 50,000 men. This is a very big area in northeast Syria, a lot of it not very heavily inhabited. In, and, and but, half of it, but half of it is of Arab. And when you're in Raqqa and other places, they don't look forward to Kurdish predominance extending into the future. It's a rather uh, unsteady relationship. Very big and therefore presumably potentially hard to defend. Pretty well impossible to defend. was very flat... A lot of the cities along the Turkish border, what would happen if the Turks move in, very difficult. What would happen if the SDF didn't have the support of uh, US air power, again, a big problem for them. Then they're looking for some sort of agreement to Damascus, a highly autonomous uh, uh, future for themselves, they hope. But uh, that, again, is something, you know, will that be acceptable to the Americans? What will the Turks think? So... They're in an extraordinarily uh, complicated and dangerous position, as we saw in Afrin earlier this year, this uh, Kurdish uh, enclave, which was overrun by Turkey with uh, um, Arab militias, and a lot of the Turkish pop- uh, Kurdish population has left. I mean, it is layer upon layer of complexity, isn't it? One of the reasons I think it can be such a baffling conflict for outsiders. Uh, Nur Samaha, do you think President Assad can stomach the SDF? I mean, not, they obviously don't pose the same existential threat to his rule as armed opposition groups who held parts of Damascus and Aleppo once did? I mean, I think what what, uh, Assad and and the Syrian government are doing is that they're applying their long breath strategy, if you will. They wait to see how the others will act on the ground. And we've seen that with with what happened in Afrin with Turkey and also how how the SDF and the American partnership will last. And so they're well aware of the fact that eventually the Americans will leave. And so as far as they're concerned, they're going to wait until the, until the Kurds are willing to come more to Damascus. Obviously, we saw a meeting right, uh, happen in Damascus recently with the SDF and, and, and uh, Damascus. But in order for, for the SDF to become weaker so Damascus can impose more conditions or impose its rules and, and what it wants uh, on the Kurds. So I think that as far as Damascus is concerned, they're willing to, to let this draw out until uh, the, the winds change in their favour. You mentioned the, the, the negotiations or the meetings, if, if you like, they were recently in Damascus. Political leaders of the SDF went to talk to uh, the Syrian government and among them was Ilham Emed. We had meetings with the regime in Damascus and our aim now is to try to understand their motives, intentions and objectives. We're trying to gauge whether they are ready for negotiations. So this was why we went to Damascus. It's not clear yet whether or not there will be negotiations or whether or not the talks will be successful. But still, we would like to explore the potential for negotiations. 
Although our previous local level meetings haven't yet resulted in concrete action, they nevertheless opened the door for our high level meetings. Now, again, the complexity the SDF is, is backed militarily by the US coalition against IS, but the US and the West still refuse to recognize SDF led administrations politically fully. So, could talks with the Assad regime harm the SDF's relations with the US? Here's Ilham Ahmed again. Our talks with the regime will not harm our relations with the United States. The US forces are here to help to provide stability in the region. They want to see the end of ISIS. And reaching those aims will require solving Syria's problems. Our talks with the Syrian regime also aim to address the same issues. So we don't see these two things as contradicting each other. Uh, Michel Duclos, I mean, perhaps the real contradiction, if you like it, is the role of Turkey, a US ally within NATO, and yet a bitter foe of the influence of the SDF in large part because of its relationship with the Turkish Kurdish rebel group, the PKK. How does this dilemma get resolved? First of all, I would say that the, the contradiction is uh, inside the uh, US administration. Uh-huh. That is to say, Trump himself is saying from time to time that he, he wants to bring the boys uh, home, back home, that uh, he wants to withdraw the um, special forces for the time being uh, still uh, on the side of the, of the Kurdish uh, militias. But other quarters in the administration believe it's very important for the U.S. to stay on the banks of Euphrates, uh, especially if you want really to make things more difficult for, for Iran. If you want to have a regional policy towards Iran, to contain Iran, obviously you have to hold some territory in uh, Syria. Vis-à-vis the, the, the Turks, the issue is once you have an alliance with uh, Syrian uh, Kurds, of course you can betray them, but it's not very good for your credibility in the region. And frankly speaking, I would not um, recommend that. In the same time, you can discuss with your Kurdish ally and you can uh, not only uh, support them militarily, but also enter uh, with them in a political discussion. And at some point, you can get from them some uh, assurances that they will not pose a threat to Turkey. And then you can negotiate with the Turks some kind of uh, modest vivendi. Karen von Hippel, I wanted you to come in there. Obviously, having worked not in this administration, but in a previous one, understandably, the Kurds feel they have a long history of being betrayed sure, by outside powers time and time again. Is it going to happen again? I mean, this has been the challenge when I spoke to Americans who have been working on Syria in the last year and a half and working with the Kurds. They were very concerned that long term, the Kurds would expect more support than the Americans were able to give them. And at the same time, they were worried post-Raqqa, okay, we all fight in Raqqa together with the Kurds, and then we don't give the Kurds what they want. And the Kurds just say to Assad, okay, come on in. They've been aware of that. And as Michelle has said, the problem is there is no U.S. foreign policy on Syria or U.S. Syria policy. And until Trump 
decides what he wants to do, the other players can easily manipulate the situation. And I'm not sure Trump will ever decide what he wants to do. I think that's really the problem. Patrick, talking about the role of Turkey, the next battlefield could be Idlib, still held by rebel groups. President Assad has said openly, this is my government's next priority. There are now, with people having been moved there, evacuated there from other regions, a pretty hard core of fighters and perhaps as many as, as two and a half million people in a relatively small area. Yeah, I mean, what's going to happen in this final battle, if it is the final battle, uh, how quickly will it uh, come about? Or will it come about in one single stage? I doubt it. I think it'll be a number of stages. But um, going back a little to what people were saying earlier, it is important to bear in mind as the level of violence and fighting goes down, politics changes somewhat. The Syrian state becomes less dependent on the Russians and the Iranians than they were until quite recently and have been over the last seven years because they don't need a strong military ally to the degree they did in the past. If the Americans and the Kurds stay there, then, of course, they actually they need the uh, Iranians more. And this affects things on the ground, too. One of the reasons the refugees go abroad is fear of violence, fear of persecution, but, about, uh, but one important thing is fear of their sons being called up yeah. into the army, conscription. This is a major motive. If the war goes down and there's less danger of that, that again will affect things on the ground. There'll be greater incentive for refugees to come back if they can. Uh, Noor Samaha, the do you think the government, A, will attack Idlib and B, if they do, there are a lot of people there who, you might argue, fighters there who feel they have nothing more to lose and will fight? I mean, we saw just in the last couple of days that uh, the de-escalation deal between Iran, Russia and Turkey for Idlib um, has been uh, blessed again, if you will. Um, so I think there is a general consensus by all of those who have a, a stake in what happens in Idlib to make sure that violence doesn't escalate. Having said that, these next few months will obviously give each of these uh, of these partners a chance to be able to consolidate whatever it is that they, they're, they're interested in. So, for example, with the Turks, they've invested so much in the area that they're very keen on bringing the opposition together under one umbrella. But you're, you're talking about the, the coordination between the outside powers, but from a Syrian government perspective, surely they see this as the last redoubt of extreme jihadis who they and the army have sworn to obliterate. Yeah, but I don't feel that, they, that they're that they in uh, an immediate hurry to deal with that. And I think, as, as Patrick had pointed out, we're likely to see uh, smaller offensives rather than one big battle. And there are areas, first off, that the government has to deal with, such as Northern Hama, um, such as uh, securing the highway to Aleppo and Ladi. You'll see a battle in Jusr al-Jarur, but you're not going to see a massive government offensive on Idlib, especially because of the interests of these other powers that are in charge of the de-escalation. Yeah, there's 70,000 Turkish fighters in that area, aren't there? So it's it's potentially, I was, I was going to say, what does Turkey do if there are attacks on Idlib? And these are, these are some of the things which the de-escalation talks are designed to right. try to manage, I guess. Right. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, looking at the war in Syria. Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I'd encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series, told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. 
There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at our new email address, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Chris Morris, looking at the war in Syria and my guests. Patrick Coburn and Karen von Hippel in London, by Noor Samaha in Beirut, and Michel Duclos in Paris. Well, let's now hear a viewpoint from within Syria. Faraz Shahabi is an MP from Aleppo, Syria's second city, and the scene of heavy fighting before it was retaken by government forces at the end of 2016. He's close to the government, so I asked him if he thought the war has now been won. The people and the government, both and the army, all of them won the war. It is not the government's war. It's not a party's war. It's not one man war. It's our war. I mean, we consider this to be our own personal war as well against jihadi terrorists, against, you know, foreign intruders, against uh, thieves, looters, corruption, all of this that came to our country and trying to ruin it and destroy it and, and, and rob it and bring it back like 200, 300 years back. We could safely say that we, the people of Syria and all of us won, the, won this war. You talk about foreign intruders. You probably wouldn't have yes. got anywhere close to where you are now without Russia and Iran intervening on your behalf. Is, yes. the, is, the, is your president not now, in effect, a prisoner of those outside powers well, himself? Uh, the, the Russians and the Iranians, uh, we don't consider them foreign intruders because they came legally at the request of the legitimate and recognized Syrian government. They're unlike uh, the UK or the Americans or the French or the, any NATO or, or the jihadi mercenaries that are allied with the NATO. These are foreign intruders. The Israelis are foreign intruders in, in the Golan or in southern Syria. A lot of Syrian citizens who've been subject to aerial bombardment by the Russian Air Force, I'm fairly sure, would disagree with you. Can you not see from their point of view that... Uh, the no, Russians no. certainly seem like for, a foreign intrusion. No, actually, I don't, re I don't really rec regard the uh, Nusra Front uh, terrorists that you call civilians. It's as, not just uh, the really Nusra legitimate. Front, though, is it? It's, 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 it's ordinary people, citizens who you presumably no, want to think... reconcile with, who've also been caught up in all of this. You know, I don't think that the Russians or the Syrian Air Force deliberately targets uh, civilians that, that it tries to liberate. I can give you evidence on this. So basically... I don't think we are bombing civilians. We are liberating civilians. We are freeing our own civilians from terror jihadis and, and all, all uh, other countries that support them. More than five million Syrians have fled abroad as refugees. Would you welcome all of them back unconditionally? Yes. Yes, of course. Except the terror jihadi ones. Except al-Qaeda members. And who, we don't, who we decides don't... that? Who decides that there won't be a witch hunt? They're not going to be a witch hunt because what happened in, in, in Dara now and the Suwaita, many, many who were actually involved with the Nusra when they surrendered and they said, we regret joining the Nusra. We were forced to join the Nusra, which is Al-Qaeda. They were let go. They were let go without investigation. They are now normal citizens. So basically anyone outside is welcome to come back. But jihadi leaders who are known to be jihadi leaders, who are bosses, who ordered the, the assassinations of many, who ordered the, the head uh, the chopping of many, the butchering of many, the tortures of many. They are known. Their own people say we were ordered by these guys. Do you accept such guys to go back to London, for instance? We don't. But the rest, everybody else is welcome to come back as long as they uh, repent and not use weapons 
and say we are willing to be a normal citizen again. That's it. And are you proud of what your government has done over the last seven years? I'm proud. I'm proud that I'm still alive. Proud, I'm proud, proud of my of, army. Proud of yeah, barrel I'm, bombs. Proud of chemical no, no, weapons. No, 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 no. Are you proud of of, of supporting uh, your government's support of uh, a terror group by the name of White Helmets, supporting them with chemical weapons and and falsifications and fabrications? That's your also? opinion, Mr. Shahabi. No, you no, call no, the White no, Helmets we're... a terrorist group. A lot of people wouldn't see them that way. These your guys, the White Helmets, are were established in London in 2013. They're, they're not, not Syrian civil de- defense. They're not my guys. Well, they are the MI6 guys. And they were funded by your government and by the U.S. government. The U.S. cut the funding. The U.K. did not cut the funding. Most of their rescuers are jihadi terrorists. And their bases are within al-Qaeda bases. Most of their bases are. So they are a jihadi mercenary group. And I'm proud of that my government helped me, rescued me, and rescued millions like me from guys like these. Well, that's Farah Shahabi, pro-government MP from Aleppo. And I want to focus for a few minutes with the panel now on Bashar al-Assad himself, the most important man in Syria. Uh, Karen von Hippel, I think you you began the programme by saying he's had a bit of a a Pyrrhic victory. Do do you think he's in power but weak? Because Patrick had suggested his strength has always been underestimated. Look, I mean, I just go back to the point I made about his moral authority to lead his country after killing or being responsible, largely responsible for however many, 300 to 500,000 deaths uh, for for barrel bombing his people, for causing half the population to, to leave his own country. And I just don't see how he has a moral authority globally. They never quite got the International Criminal Court involved for a whole bunch of other reasons. But he certainly should be brought before an international tribunal at some stage. And what about internally, Nor Samara? I mean, half the country, however you choose to split it, despise this man. The other half love him. He can only rule by force, can't he? I think maybe it was Michelle that pointed this out, that um, it, it's actually beyond who supports or doesn't support Assad. And I think actually what, what needs to be paid attention to is whether or not it's possible for the internally displaced inside Syria, those who are living in government areas and then those who are living in former opposition areas, whether or not it's possible for them to be able to continue their lives or feel secure in the areas that they're in. I think he cares less about uh, what the international community thinks of him and more about regaining that legitimacy within the eyes of his own population. So the fact that, for example, they're going to be holding local municipal elections in September of this year, this will be the first time that they'll be doing that since 2011. And they cancelled the ones in 2015 because of the security situation. But the fact that they're holding these elections, for me, is an indication that Assad and his government view themselves as, as having legitimate control over the areas that they've recaptured, and that they're presenting a platform for people on a very local level to participate politically. Now, the question, obviously, is whether or not those that were in formal opposition areas will participate or if they'll boycott. And I think these will be the indicators inside Syria as to whether or not Assad has the the authority or the legitimacy to continue governing um, over Syria. Patrick Coburn, how, how do you think he will rule now for the minority who helped him win or, or will he reach out? It's been a civil war and there are winners and losers. Will he reach out? To some degree, maybe, but... You know, there are very concrete questions arise. What happens to the six and a half million refugees? You know, can they go back to their property? Does somebody own their property now? Has somebody taken that property? Is living it? This what happened in Baghdad, I mean, 10 years ago. These are very important questions for a very large chunk of the population. Whatever people, nice words people say about, yeah, yeah, you're welcome to come back. But can somebody get their house or their field back? 
And we'll have to see what happens there. Are people going to be released from jail? Is there going to be an amnesty? These are the concrete questions which arise now. And we'll have to see how these are answered. I want to come back to sort of the idea of refugees and, and, and reconstruction in a minute. But I just wanted to ask... Michelle, I mean, we are coming down in some ways to practicalities here, aren't we? I mean, there may be many people who, well, they may not like Assad. In fact, they may hate him. But will they not make the choice that an enforced peace has to be better than the war they've lived through? Let me say a word about uh, Assad himself, because, you know, I happen to have uh, known a bit those people and discuss with, uh, with them. I was ambassador at a time of relative peace. And the people uh, I was able to, to meet in the, in the country, uh, everywhere in the country, not only in Damascus, there was a relative acceptation of the regime. I mean, the, the people, the average uh, Syrian citizen would believe that if you compare with the situation in Iraq at that time, their dictator was better than that kind of a democracy. And then, when talking with the people uh, of the regime, it was very surprising that they tended to exaggerate their own illegitimacy. And coming back to this notion of, of legitimacy, for them, they, they perceive themselves as a, a minority, which will never be accepted by the majority of the people. And after that... You mean you're talking in terms of them being Alevites in a, in a, yes, in a mainly Sunni yes, Arab country? Yes. And for them, the only way to, uh, to rule the country was to ally themselves with the other minorities and to oppress the majority. I think Assad himself never imagined that he could be legitimate and it's probably more true uh, today than uh, ever. And that's one of the reasons why, as he said himself, he declared that himself, he is not interested in the refugees coming back in, in the country. But does that also mean you think that things like local municipal elections are just window dressing? Does it not give people com any sense of empowerment? Yes, it's complete window dressing. So it's possible that uh, some uh, young uh, officials who has a practice of local agreements, pacification agreements and so on, their mentality is a bit different. But, you know, it's very hard to believe uh, all that. So the bulk of the system is built upon the idea that you have to rule by force, as has been said. Window dressing, Patrick? I, I agree that Syria is ruled by force. We're just on the end of the uh, war. You know, and also in Kurdish-held parts, you know, every few miles you come across another checkpoint. You have to have exactly the right paper to get anywhere. This is very much a country under military occupation in every part. So I can't see elections at this stage or even in the further future playing much role in deciding who holds power in Syria. You know, we've had a war, we have winners and losers, and you can see that all over the country, and that isn't really going to be changed by electoral decisions. Karen? Well, I think the real challenge will be reconstruction. The country is so destroyed. Infrastructure, houses, uh, there's just very little... Uh, I mean, there's so many areas where complete rebuilding needs to happen... It's not clear to me where the money will come from. I certainly don't think 
this country or the United States or France is going to be paying uh, for it. The Russians and the Iranians aren't going to pay for it, and the Syrians don't have the money either. And the longer the situation remains untenable on the ground, the more dissatisfaction you're going to have amongst the population. And so that's also going to impact his ability to lead that country. And let's not forget that the reason we have all these terrorist groups in the first place was because of his brutal rule. And that has not been solved. And so the... No, I got the impression you thought that... You know, local elections are a step forward. Most of the rest of the panel seem to be saying it's it's irrelevant. It's window dressing. No, I mean, I think I, to to the extent that it is window dressing, I agree. I mean, I feel the fact that he that that these elections are even being considered and held um, is part and parcel of of the idea that he's presenting himself as as having legitimacy inside of the country. What happens in these elections is uh, is almost irrelevant. Um, but it's it's the fact that these elections are even being held that he wants to portray himself as someone who's providing this mm. um, these platforms for people to participate. He wants the appearance of normalization, and I would say that on substance, the real challenge from for him in political terms should come and will come from his own uh, community. That is to say, the the Alawites. Let's try and drill down a little bit more into something we've mentioned a couple of times, refugees and reconstruction, because as well as causing the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, the estimates appear to be, and I'm sure one of you will correct me if you think otherwise, between 350 and possibly as many as 500,000 people killed. Uh, Also huge numbers of refugees and the mass movement of populations. More than 5 million Syrians have fled abroad and an even larger number are internally displaced. Patrick, can people now come back? Some can, but others with difficulty, because whatever sort of sweet talk there is at this stage, people who fled abroad, that the Assad government is going to consider them as opponents within the country, eastern Ghouta. Yeah, they may, people may say that there are amnesties, but nobody's quite sure what happens to you at the next checkpoint. Could you end up in the army? Could you end up in prison? How do you get out? There is a deep sense of insecurity all over the country. There are some things going in the other direction. If violence goes down to the end of the war, the question of being conscripted into the army becomes less of an issue. But overall, the political geography of uh, Syria has changed. There are sort of local civil wars within areas in Damascus, so people can't happily go back to the other side, you know. So, so I think that'll be a very slow process. So there's a the safety issue of, is it safe for me to go back? There's obviously also the reconstruction issue. So many buildings damaged or destroyed, in, entire neighbourhoods in ruins. Uh, Michel Duclos, you've obviously been ambassador to Syria. Where do you even start with the, the level of destructions that we only see snapshots of on our television screen, but, but, but you know, a country in ruins? Yes, frankly speaking, I don't believe in uh, reconstruction. <laughs> because? And, uh, because, uh, first of all, it's a Western concept. is something that uh, people are talking about in, in Washington, in Brussels. But seen from Damascus, it's, uh, it's really elusive. And the Russians have known them a little bit. I'm sure they, <laughs> they are not interested at all in, in that. It's not... Uh, their problems, their games, their way of thinking. When I was talking to Farah Shahabi earlier, the MP from Aleppo, one of the things he said, which we didn't have time to include in the interview we just played, was that if Western countries want to help in Syria, they should A, admit they were wrong to help armed jihadis, 
and B, they should pay compensation. Now, Karen von Hippel, you've worked inside a Western government. You can play politics with this or you can make a decision, let's help the millions of people who need assistance from outside. So who's going to do it? Is it going to be Western governments? Does the UN come marching in with blue helmets? What, what, how does it get done? I mean, that's a very good question. The the money has to come from somewhere. There's zero appetite in the Trump administration to pay for this. He doesn't mm. even want to pay in Iraq. And a lot of mm. the problems in Iraq are based on the U.S. intervention in the first place. He has been saying, well, the private sector should come in and do it in Iraq. Whereas in, in Syria, which is far more complicated, uh, you know, I, I don't think He'll, I just don't think he'll do it. And now it also depends. I think the country – look, I haven't been there. Different parts of the country will have different levels of destruction. And so as Patrick was asking these questions earlier, do you have a home to go home to is mm-hmm. one of the, the fundamental questions. Some parts of Syria where the ISIL uh, – where ISIL had taken over like Raqqa, they – would have salted the earth uh, with IEDs and mines, etc. So, you know, the level of reconstruction is going to be very different in different parts of the country. Patrick? Yeah, a lot of the reconstruction is going to come from the people who originally lived there. I mean, in places like Raqqa, there are guys with money, but they don't know what the political future is. It may not necessarily be, be the people who are originally living there, but there may be people from the city. I mean, Raqqa, you have massive destruction. It's not all gloomy. I mean, I was in Kobani a few weeks ago, which uh, was uh, besieged by uh, Daesh ISIS in 2014 and 15, completely, 70, 80% of it completely destroyed. Most of that's rebuilt by people who are originally living there. You can see that places like Ramadi and Iraq. Uh, And Noor Samaha, I mean, there's also money to be made, isn't there? I mean, if you're a construction company... In Turkey, a construction company in Iran, you may be looking for your piece of the pie in the bits of the country you can access. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, obviously sitting in Lebanon right now, there are uh, businessmen here who are chomping at the bit to get involved in reconstruction. Um, But I mean, it's it's uh, it would be a minefield in terms of dealing with bureaucracy and government restrictions and so on and so forth. So, I mean, at the moment, it's a lot of talk and very little action. Um, But actually, I just wanted to raise a point about the refugees. Um, There was a lot of talk, I think, by Patrick, who was talking about, you know, the security and and, uh, people returning to certain areas. But we can't also forget the conditions that certain and refugees are living in host countries. And uh, Lebanon is an example. And I think because of the situation here where there is so much pressure from all sides of, of the political spectrum here to put, to get the refugees to go back to Syria to the point where it's it's incredibly unbearable to be living here as a refugee. How much longer can they mm. bear living in, in an area where the host population is so hostile towards them? Okay, I want no, to... That's, that's a very good point, of course. I want to move on to... <laughs> The role of foreign powers, one of the reasons the war has gone on for so long, has been the involvement of foreign powers. Russia and Iran on behalf of President Assad. You've had Britain, France, Turkey, the US, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. You can go on and on. Uh, Michelle, you're a former French ambassador uh, in Syria. Are you ready to accept that French policy has failed and you just need to adapt? France needs to adapt, as other European countries do to the reality of the current situation? I would say that French policy uh, has failed, obviously, uh, no doubt about that. Now, what is to be done? I would be very cautious. We don't need to take uh, bold initiatives uh, every day, you know. But you can't just now, wash your hands of, of things well, either, can you? No, but you can say the traditional uh, motto, the, the Russians uh, have broken it, it's, it's, uh, they, they own it. If they need us, uh, we can help. 
but under our conditions. And it's very clear for me that as long as Assad uh, will be in Damascus, there is very little we can uh, do in the country. Let's try, of course, to do good where we can. Uh, let's try to push a political process. But basically, we are not anymore in the driving seat and we should not uh, compromise uh, ourselves in helping the, the wrong people. Uh, Patrick, do you, do you think Russia's in it for the long haul? Russia has made enormous diplomatic gains from Syria. So it yeah. sort of put yeah. them back in business as a great power. They're always a nuclear superpower. But after Libya, they were a sort of rather marginal influence on world affairs, or much less important. After Syria, they're a great power again, and they're not going to retreat from that. But, you know, it's a complicated situation, because they also have an alliance with Turkey. That's very, very important for them. Yeah. They'll want to maintain that. You know, one saw how they allowed the withdrew their air umbrella over Afrin earlier this year, this Kurdish enclave, and allowed the Turks to come in. So they'll want to maintain that. Uh, so they'll do these various balancing acts, which they've got rather good at. But the other considerations, you know, that with the war ending, Damascus, Assad doesn't need them to quite the degree he did previously. There isn't the same air of, you know, we must have this. This is a complete priority, uh, equally with Iran. One point that people don't generally mention is what Iraq, this was very important, why did ISIS and Daesh spread through eastern Syria so fast, is because they were established in northern Iraq. Now, the defeat of ISIS in Iraq, this is an important stabilizing factor. And the other country, the other neighbor we haven't mentioned much, of course, is Israel. Yeah. And we've heard from the hardline defense minister, Avidor Lieberman, on, on Thursday this week. He says, from our perspective, the situation is returning in Syria to how it was before the civil war, meaning there is a real address, someone responsible and central rule. For Israel, this is a net benefit, isn't it? There may not be any love lost with Assad, but at least it feels more stable for Israel. Karen. Yeah, I mean, it's just another complicated piece of the puzzle, the role that Israel has played. Israel has been quiet throughout most of the war, obviously focusing primarily on Iran. But Israel also has a relationship with Russia. So, you know, Russia does have this incredible way of keeping close even to its Gulf partners and staying in the thick of it. Um, but I wouldn't be quite so optimistic. I know you're not optimistic, Patrick, but I wouldn't quite say it was it was stable. I think this is just a calm before the storm in both Iraq and Syria. The rehabilitation needs are so enormous. The challenges and the initial grievances are not remotely being addressed in either country. And I just don't see stability uh, lasting for very long if there is stability now. Now, look, I, I could I hope I'm wrong, but I just I don't see it going in a positive direction. Well, we're coming close to the end of the program. And as regular listeners will know, we often close by trying to look 10 years into the future. That seems particularly hard in Syria, where the last 10 years has been almost unimaginable. But uh, Noor Samaha in neighbouring Lebanon, in 10 years' time, do you think Lebanon will still be hosting over a million Syrian refugees or will they be able to go home? I think that you will have a lot of very, very angry politicians if Lebanon is still hosting refugees. But at the same time, I think there'll be a reduction in, in the number of refugees that Lebanon is hosting. But I don't think we're going to see one million all go back to Syria. I mean, some will stay because they've set up home here. Others will stay because they really don't want to be uh, back in government controlled areas. Michel Duclos, in 10 years time, Syria still a, a, a proxy conflict for other outside powers? I think before that, there will be a big crisis. 
that's why I'm reluctant to, to say that Assad has won. Maybe he has won for the for the time being, but many other difficulties uh, which are lying uh, ahead for him, because I don't see uh, the kind of a balance between Iran, Israel, U.S., Turkey, um, Russia being established like that. There will be further developments. The most important feature is that uh, Iran is very uh, heavily committed in, um, in, in Syria, uh, present uh, everywhere, not only in terms of military bases, but in terms of infiltrating the society and, and the power apparatus. And for the time being, the Israeli uh, politicians don't see that. They are focused only on missiles and military bases. But it's a larger problem than, than that. Karen von Hippel, you haven't sounded all that optimistic during the course of the programme. Can you give me any blue sky in 10 years' time? I mean, I'm, uh, unfortunately, I'm not optimistic it's going to get any better, and especially because the U.S. has withdrawn from any attempt to play a positive leadership role in the region. And, and Patrick, you've been covering this for a very long time. As I said, it's been an, a ghastly last 10 years in Syria. What do you see? People are feeling fought out there. You know, they desperately want peace. That's exhausted. Important. Exhausted on all sides. Uh, you don't quite, you know, what really gets things explode there is internal dissent of an organized kind backed up, plugged into a, an active outside supporter. That isn't quite happening as it was before. Now, I accept that it's full of unresolved crises and tensions, sectarian, ethnic differences, all these things are there. But these might you know, be static for quite a long time. They might be static in 10 years' time. So I'm a little bit more optimistic. I think things might begin to gel and pacify. But what's going to happen between Iran and the US and so forth, these other things could agitate the whole situation. Well, a, a mildly positive note to end on. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thanks to our guests, Patrick Coburn, Michel Duclos, Karin von Hippel and Nur Samaha. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. If you like this week's programme, make sure you never miss another edition and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us simply by searching for The Real Story in your podcast app. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the programme, good or bad. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me, Chris Morris and the team, that is The Real Story for this week. Thanks for listening.